Listeners, we would like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Shelly, Tara, Rachel, Abby, Peter, the Reverend Langenstein, and Annalise. Your money makes the show happen. Thank you all for your money. And if you'd like to join our supporters over at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, you can also get access to a number of things, uh, such as a patron-only podcast feed. Uh, there's bonus content on that at, at times. And there's also a patron-only podcast that Ian and Joe record called Pillow Talk, where they talk about how much they love money. No, we talk about the opposite of that. Actually, we did. We talked about um, why the love of money is the root of all evil. And then we talked about how much we must love money since we still live in like a house. That's so, true. It's not a it's, house we own <laughs> or anything like that. But Right. But well, either way, no, I get it. I get it. You're surrounded by people who love money and the, the, the person who really loves money owns the house that you live in. It, it's complicated. You know, like... Uh, we shouldn't like money, but we do like whiskey. I know. So what are we supposed to do with that? Make our own? We'll just go blind then. No, not always. I come from a line of moonshiners. You heard it here first. Uh, and Cotton Mather, which you've heard, <laughs> which you've heard eight million times. Did y'all know that? Did you know that Joe's related to Cotton Mather? Annalise, I've never heard it until this moment. I, so, did, I didn't know it either. I, I super didn't know. But do you know what I do know? What do you know, Annalise? That you can also uh, rate and review and subscribe and share this fantastic podcast on social media, or just keep listening, because we like that too. We sure do. And I've seen what Ethan has done to the ad read here, and I'm going to read it. What do you do? And now, Hoop, here's the show. (laughs) Damn it. One, two, five, nine. Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Welcome, friends. For this episode of What the Hell is a Pastor, we are doing something of a real Christianity, which is a segment we occasionally do where we spend the whole episode discussing uh, a series, a, a show, a movie. We even do books from time to time. And so for today's Real Christianity edition of What the Hell is a Pastor, we are talking about Mike Flanagan's most recent Netflix show, The Midnight Club. Usually, Joe, being the the master interviewer she is, and the far more fair thinker and reviewer than myself, usually Joe uh, kind of runs the ship on these and in general. But this time, I am going to do my best to run the ship. As we have several guests with us, are two friends of the pod, Annalise and Nick. And so, welcome, Annalise and Nick. How are you doing? Good. I'm so excited. I I really did love the show. I know it had a lot of. Um, issues uh but i really liked it and i also finally watched hill house so i i now i super understand why everyone is like disappointed with everything he's done since then but (laughs) but i did love this show part of the it's it's kind of like a legend of cora situation for me though because i watched uh, I watched Korra before I watched Avatar, so I liked Korra, even though everybody else hates it, because I did I it backwards, it. and when you're comparing one to the other, you definitely know which one is better, but when you start with the worst one, <laughs> so that's sure. kind of where I am with Midnight Club. Nick, what about you? I'm just happy to be here. Uh, I'm happy to be included. I don't know where Ethan gets the impression that I'm ever nicer than he is about <laughs> uh, I'm not. Um... <laughs> Annalise usually keeps you uh, a little nicer Uh, I I just steamroll I just am like I don't care who's here I don't care who loved it I don't give a shit about any of it Um, So here at Real Christianity We do our best to follow some simple rules Which is we always start with what we enjoyed Can we actually start with a a quick synopsis For anybody that has no idea what we're talking about Yes, we can. That hasn't turned off the episode already. (laughs) 
fair. Who who would like who would like to give us a synopsis of the Midnight Club? I think about Joe. Oh crap. <laughs> we just volunteered each other. Yes. Um I will I will do my best and y'all can jump in and clean up. So Midnight Club is a miniseries on Netflix by Mike Flanagan and Leah Fong, who I think has more of a play in this than than in any other Flanagan show. I think Flanagan took uh, less of an auteur for this one. But anyway, um, it, ha- it exists in a hospice that has eight uh, terminally ill teenagers who uh, every night they're all dying from like cancer or AIDS, right? It's all cancer and AIDS. And they, each night they come together and they tell spooky stories to each other. And then like the show makes those spooky stories happen. There's also some weird stuff with like uh, a cult and trying to um, heal people of their cancer maybe. And then there's also some stuff with like ghosts in the property. And there's also, um, Bev from Midnight Mass comes back and is uh, a creepy caretaker of like a, uh, what is it? Like a, like a wellness center? Wellness center, herbal stuff. Who's next door? A coven, a coven of some kind. <laughs> yeah, that too. It, it definitely has religious undertones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's something going on. Um, and so, yeah, let me run through the children's who are in it. You have uh, Alonka, who is kind of our main character. The story kind of focuses around her. She has thyroid cancer, and she comes to this place, Brightcliff, because she thinks that she's heard of somebody who got miraculously cured of their thyroid cancer, and so she thinks that, like, maybe I'm going to find this. Um, You have Kevin... Kevin, who has uh, terminal leukemia and is uh, both the whitest person in terms of skin tone and character content. Correct. (laughs) You have Anya, who's Irish, um, and she has bone cancer and has lost a leg. How is Anya not the whitest? she's Irish like no no fine fair enough I'm defending my boy Kevin because his story was the best but keep going I we can we can come back to Kevin I think that's fine Kevin is the reason that I hate the parts of the show that I hate but that's fine um you have Sandra who is the uh Christian one who has lymphoma uh, you have Spencer who is one who has AIDS you have Sherry who is it Sherry that's mm-hmm. her name. Yeah. I forgot her name all, all of the time, but her name's Sherry. She uh, has wealthy parents uh, who are like always filming, always somewhere else. She's a pathological liar, and I don't know what her diagnosis is, but she does have a wig and she has gone through chemo, she says. So she's got something. You have Natsuki, who has uh, terminal ovarian cancer. You have Amesh, who has uh, brain cancer. And uh, of the min- of the Midnight Club, he is the newest before Alanka comes up. And that is all the kids, right? Mm-hmm. And so. then uh, you also have the guy from Midnight Mass, who's also from Friday Night Lights. Um, Zach Guilford is the actor's name. Mark, he's the nurse there. And I think he does a fantastic job in this great. He, I love his character. I think yeah. he does a great job with it, too. It's great. I don't think you need to put leading man weight on him just because he is a leading man face. I think he is perfectly great in the role that he's in. Um, and then there's Dr. Stanton, who is like the person who's in charge of the hospice. And kind of over the course of the show, they tell all their stories. People get sick. People die. Ghosts. They're, the big thing about the Midnight Club is that they're telling these stories. And they're also looking for proof that there's life beyond this life. Because they all have terminal cancer. And that's this is a show that um, I think deals with fear of death sideways you'd think that they would want to look at it straight on and be like here are kids who are dying let's talk about death but instead because it's based off of this like YA book and so yeah uh, I can say a little bit about that if you want yeah I I think that maybe that's why it doesn't do this like let's look at the injustice of death but like let's tell a story about kids with cancer a Mm -hmm. la um what's the John Green one Fault in Our Stars. Fault in Our Stars. Yeah, yeah. Fault in Our Stars is very much John Green, like, meditating on the unjustness of death and the meaning that we can make in life. And Midnight Mass does a piece of that, but doesn't do as much of that as I expected. But Annalise, tell us about the book. 
Yeah, the book is by Christopher Pike. It has the same name. But the thing to know about the show is that not only did they um, change up a few of the characters, the show added two more um, kids to Brightcliff and changed the um, Dr. White, who had been the person in charge of the facility, to Dr. Stanton. Um, and the, the, the stories that... The um, that the kids tell at the Midnight Club are all based on other works of Christopher Pike. Mm. Um, And there's also a bunch of stuff from uh, season that was going to be in season two that finished up the story from the the Midnight Club book. Um, And I think personally that a lot of that is the stuff that sounded awful so (laughs) so part yeah so i don't know but yes that's that's what i know about the book yeah and i i think um i what i remember from when the three of you first watched it because i finished it more recently than the three of you have is that there was a lot about the show that y'all loved but you did not like the ending and it's because it's setting up a season two that then there's a whole lot of ghosty things that you want resolved that they just don't address at all like the polar bears and lost and so um you're you're irritated in that way about it but you know maybe maybe we were saved something (laughs) from not having season two or maybe season two would have turned out a whole lot different once they really got in the room workshopping it so who knows you never know you never know uh very good synopsis so uh, with that being said, what are some of the things that we liked about the Midnight Club? Because Joe is right. I I did not I personally do not remember us disliking the Midnight Club when when we had conversations about it. I remember us being frustrated by uh parts of the Midnight Club, and I continue to be frustrated by it. But but my primary things that frustrate me are storytelling things. It, it not not really the um not really necessarily the content of the of it or the way it was acted, you know, or or directed. It's just choices that were made that I feel like probably were more connected to the source material, but I wish uh, were just made differently. But that's on me, and I and 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 I don't I don't need to talk about that anymore right now. What were some of the things that you liked about the Midnight Club, friends? I want to hear from Nick. Okay, you want me to lead off the positives? Okay. <laughs> I I think the thing that I I liked the most about the show was their stories actually, which were supposed to reflect the the books, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um I didn't read those books, so I have no context for if that that was a good or bad adaptation of those things. Um but I thought that consistently uh, I was more excited for their stories than what was actually happening in the real world, quote unquote. Mm. Um, a few of them were very good. Some of them were less interesting, but, but still not, none of them were bad. None, nothing was really bad in any of their like stories that they told in the midnight club. Right. Um, and I found some of them very compelling. They kind of came at, coping with death from different angles. And I liked that. I have a real, uh, I almost said fascination that, that makes it sound uh, a little creepy, but I I have a a fixation on death um, and how we all cope with it and deal with it and how it drives us and connects to faith and some of that stuff. And so I appreciate that uh, different perspectives. I thought some of the acting was very good um some of it i know was teenagers but i thought some of it was solid enough of it was really solid that it it carried the people who weren't and i think that's important Mm -hmm. when you have kid actors in the show um i i remember being really compelled by the kid with aids Spencer. i thought he as an actor of the of the kids uh, stood out to me as as pretty compelling as an actor mm-hmm. um, and he had a hard trauma to to try to bring out on screen i i felt um so i i appreciated that um i liked i didn't well i think i hated the cliffhanger when it happened 
Because Flanagan had just never done a series before, so you expect it to be wrapped up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't inherently hate cliffhangers as a concept. Um, and I and I think that if they wanted to leave room for mystery, because they introduced a lot of mystery. Mm-hmm. And I don't hate that. I, I think that can be fun. And like I said, I'm new to this horror genre, so I, I don't know how much some of this is supposed to flow. Uh, the way that it did, but I, I thought that the mystery they set up felt good in the moment. But but there's there's a few positives. Sure, Annalise, Joe, which one? Which of you would like to go next? Annalise, you go. Great. Um, oh my gosh, I really really loved the show. Part of the thing that you should uh, keep in mind for for me is that I saw this show as I was starting to work with our local hospice. Mm. I joined their board um, and uh, for many reasons have uh, gotten very close with the folks that are doing grief support at hospice. And so I loved having kind of walked with them through some of their world and then coming into the show, I was like, Oh, I love this. So it was, um, the, it, it hit exactly the right, uh, vibe for me at the time. Um, so I was really excited about that. I had a deep love of the stories that, uh, they told in the club. Um, I liked a lot of them. I can't wait to know what which um, stories were your favorite? We know Ethan's already, but I can't wait to hear what what who what else you all think. Um, I really uh, I thought that they did a nice job of weaving parts of what Christopher Pike was doing in like a, a you know a whole novel and bringing it down to a little story. He, they mostly just took plot beats, and then mm. because of that, they were able to really nicely kind of weave together the themes from the book and like give a nod to Chris Pike um, and also um, to uh, mold it into the world that they had created within this particular show. So I thought they did that nicely. I love an ensemble show like that, where it's like, Mm -hmm. here's a story, here's a story, here's a story. They're all connected by a through line. Um, But I love those. I'm a sucker for those. So this also caught me in that way. Um, And there were so many moments, like just specific little moments in it that I just loved um going back to spencer i loved the moments where he's interacting with mark the nurse um i thought that was beautifully done um that moment when anya just goes off on elanka um explaining what's going on with spencer i think was beautiful and was a a a good like this is very much anya's character like this is exactly the way that she would explain this situation um but also i appreciated the way that everyone in the room responded um, and the like the depth of the compassion that was understood um, that like I just I thought it was beautiful um I liked the way that they worked through Sandra and Spencer's um, kind of head-to-head um, kind of with this conversation about faith hitting issues of human sexuality. And I thought that was well done. And I really appreciated the way that that resolved with, um, Sandra being somebody who was sympathetic and was learning in that moment that she needed to be louder about her support because of how loud the negatives, the people that are standing against him were that she learned in that moment that like, this is my friend and I'm going to like go down swinging for my friend. Um, and I love that. Um, uh, so that was really cool too. I, my other like specific moment that just like was like a, Oh, my heart, like my heart just broke. And I felt like I learned something in that moment was the conversation about sending Kevin to prom Mm-hmm. Um, and the anticipation of how bad it was going to go, uh, from, from all of those, but especially from Spencer. And then when, um, when he gets back and finding out that exactly what they were expecting to happen to him happened to him and how it hurt him. Oh my gosh. So 
this moment is we've sent Kevin to prom before he goes. Everyone's like, oh, have fun, but secretly going, oh, this is going to be so uncomfortable because there's nothing like, you know, being the dying kid at somebody's prom where you don't even know most of the people that you're going to like be walking around with. And they're just going to constantly come up to you and say things like, oh, my my aunt died of cancer. My dog died of cancer, which is a thing that they talk about when he gets back um that like they ask him how it went and he says well i was compared to several dead relatives and a dog (laughs) and they're like oh that's a new one right um and and it's like a joke it's like an in joke that all of these kids are sitting around and i thought wow that is not a thing that i ever thought to universalize ever (laughs) because i've never been in a group full of people that have that shared experience and in a place where they could all talk about like yeah that's just a thing that happens every day someone compares me to their dead aunt right I'm like oh that must be a fun way to exist um but the most poignant moment for me was when he says they made me prom king Mm. and everybody just stops what they're doing and they just look at him and they're like oh god right like they don't even have to say anything one of them just gets up and gives him a drink and it's like "Uh uh-huh and and again like every single person at that prom you know went home thinking oh what a wonderful thing we just did I Mm. bet he's so happy now and he's gone he's gone back to that poor hospice where he's gonna die feeling happier because we made him prom king (laughs) and that juxtaposed with the rest of Kevin's story which I'm excited to hear more about why you love this one Ethan because I want I I have deep feelings about Kevin's entire (laughs) storyline but um but the uh the when you compare it to everything else that he is going through it's just the exact opposite thing from what he needed in that moment <laughs> he wanted exactly one moment of normalcy and he yeah. got the exact opposite of that the whole way through and it's so palpable um so that mm-hmm. moment like i would I, I legitimately rec- like recommended the series to the grief counselors at the hospice that I work for specifically <laughs> because of that scene. It was like, if you don't watch anything else, I just need you to watch this. Um, and it was like, I just gained so much insight just from watching that. Um, and it made me rethink about the ways that we try to celebrate and cheer people up that are dealing with grief. But I'll stop there. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love yeah. it. Uh, and Joe. Um. So the thing for me about this is that I it was recovering from cancer when I was watching this. I can't remember. Annalise, did we start watching it before I had surgery or after? After. It was during your recovery. We came over and hung out and watched the first couple episodes. Yeah. And, and something that I'm sure that I've said a million times in the podcast is that like, I feel like my cancer feelings are like catching up to me. Like it was a rubber band that was stretched and then bounced back. Um, and so they have continued to catch up to me over the course of watching the show. And it's boy. Yeah. That the scene with the, I mean, I wasn't a teenager with cancer, but I am a younger person with cancer and it was stage one. I'm not not dying, but, um, the, I got compared to everybody's aunt and a dog. It is. Once you say you have cancer, everybody's like, Oh my gosh, so-and-so went through cancer and it was just really hard. Um, and some of it was very helpful. Like some of it was like, hi, I know somebody who had colon cancer. If you want like tips on colonoscopies, talk to this person. And I'm like, that's great. That's fine. And then I've had a bunch of people be like, I got a colonoscopy because of you. And I'm like, fun. Did yours have cancer though? Because, you know, after like the first 10 of those, I was starting to, um, be a little resentful of people's healthy colons, but get your colons checked friends. Just don't talk to me about it. (laughs) But yeah, like there, there is a real like that um, graveyard humor about cancer that happens when you're like in the thick of cancer, I think is very real. It's something that like me and Pamela talked about a lot. We're like, I think that if you took bits of me and Pamela's conversation and put it out in the world, people would be like, what are you saying? But it's just cancer talk, the new podcast from what the hell's a pastor. Yeah. So I, I kind of approached a lot of it through the lens of like, is this, how, how authentic is this to my experience? Even though my experience is not their experience. And there were a lot of moments that rang really true. I thought a lot about Kevin before going to prom, how he got like an extra infusion of blood 
blood so he would look a little bit more rosy cheeked and just things like that that like no one at all of that prom was thinking oh you know he had to get some extra blood for this he's looking good you know Mm -hmm. like none of that is anything that's in their minds nor should it be like teenagers shouldn't have to think about cancer i think that's a moral statement i'm happy to stand by yeah i so i liked all the stories as well like some more than others but i i like i grew up on stephen king i love those like short stories you know i love a self-contained little bit i really thought the um having the i guess i will put it at the beginning there's massive spoilers so we'll just (laughs) spoil things um but having bev from midnight mass samantha sloyan i think um be the wellness instructor next door be like the overarching villain and have her like just so gently prodding alanka closer and closer to things that are not good for her mm-hmm. um, and then having this like these other voices of reason of like uh, when they go down into the basement and they're like yeah let's give a bunch of kids with immune uh, compromised immune systems let's take them into this place where we do not know what mold is there mm-hmm. that's there you know like that was what I thought about with taking Kevin to prom. I'm like, but but he has leukemia. Somebody could sneeze on him and he's gonna die. Like yes. anyway, that's the that's the post COVID panic in everything. Um, yeah, I I think I liked a lot of the structure. Um, I wish it was more ghost focused instead of cult. Fo- I wish it had picked one, but again, they're setting up season two mm-hmm. for the ghosts. Um, but if it had been all cult all the time, I would have been here for it. Or if it had been all ghosts all the time, I would have been here for it. I liked the uh, diversity in the cast. Yes. It, and it didn't feel as tokenizing as it could have been because there were so many black characters and you're able to have this like array of black experiences. And then you have a little bit of tokenization among the other characters of color. But, but I think they do a good job of, um, of being as representative as they can be without being too stereotypical about. Yes, I appreciated that a lot. I thought that they let each of the characters be exactly who they are and they were allowed to have different personalities and were not um, stuck in a stereotype. I really appreciated that. I think that's definitely what lent it to feeling less like tokenism and more like intentional diversity, which is what it was. And I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Um, I like that the kids have the, the whole array of emotions and also can change emotions about their diagnosis um, that they can go from like hopeful and drinking herbal teas to like just accepting that this is what's going to happen to, you know what? I actually don't want to die. What can we do? You know, that, that, um, and anger and sadness and depression and like actually naming depression and symptoms of depression um, and being like, my mom just thought I was being dramatic, but it turns out it's, levels of chemicals in my brain that are causing me to feel this way yeah there was there there was a lot to like in the show when mark takes spencer to go like visit his gay friends Mm. and like make protest signs and Mm -hmm. all this stuff i died i was like oh my gosh thank you queer people getting together because like that's that's what has to happen right it's hard to be the one queer person it's hard to be the one anything person in Mm -hmm. a group and you need to go you need to be able to have a space where you are welcome, um, where you share that um, historically oppressed identity, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I just found that to be so powerful. That was really helpful for respirate. Yeah. Ethan. I, uh, you know, I didn't, the like I said, the only things that I disliked ultimately about the show were just story decisions. You know, I just think that there were moments where, um, they made a choice for like the contained story of season one that I just didn't think was as interesting as other choices. That's that was my main gripe with it, which meant that the stuff I liked about it was is essentially mirrors what everybody has been saying. You know, I thought the acting was really good. I I I thought that the approach to um, faith and suffering. Uh, was way better here than it was in Midnight Mass. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I really do. Like, I, I, I really was appreciative of those conversations. But and, and the reason why I think it works is because um, the I, I, for me, I think the main difference between Midnight Mass and Midnight Club is that Midnight Club is a show about characters, mm-hmm. and, Midnight, and Midnight Mass is a shitty morality play in, in, <laughs> in which. In which there are no characters; they're just archetypes. They're just stock characters, you know. 
Uh, and so in the end, like Midnight Club, you're able to have like a conversation between Spencer and um, the religious one whose name I can't think of. Sandra. Sandra, you're able to have these kind of conversations between the two of them and have them feel real because the characters feel real. Like they're not they they're not religious girl and atheist man, right? Like they're they're two characters and faith and not faith happen to be a part of their what makes them who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so stuff like that I think is real great, you know, and 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 they they manage to you know to 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 do stuff like that very well on the show, which I really liked. If we are angry about the morality play of Midnight Mass, which is fair, we should all watch John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, I Think You Can All Handle It, and then be extra angry about his morality play, which is weirdly extra quantum physics-y and drove me up a wall. I think <laughs> I think the level you, of rage did you just Did you just what about... Uh, what about ism the John Carpenter show? Like that's crazy. Oh, no. what about this? You never freaked out about this. You know? <laughs> no, I'm adding it to the discussion. I'm saying we should try it and just see see the level of rage we have since we like being angry. I do like being angry. Um, <laughs> no, I'm gonna see that clip. I'm just gonna plug it into every. Episode. It makes you feel. It makes me feel alive, and I accept it. Um, that's all I'm looking for. So the things that I, by way of by way of moving into maybe criticisms we have the show. One of the 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 I've said this a few times. I'll say it again slightly more clearly. One of the things that frustrated me the most about the show is that I felt that there were there were stronger moments than others, like stronger stories than others, stronger stronger possibilities than others. That um, they ended up either explaining away. Mm. Kind of in this offhanded way, or or they just end up not going down the road that like a particular road. One simple example is um, when San- Sandra Sandra when mm-hmm. Sandra says, "Oh, that was me on the intercom." Yeah, I, I I'm immediately like, "Oh, fine, you know, like whatever, like 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 that doesn't that doesn't result. It, it, it's it's fine that it resolves a mystery. Like mystery should be resolved. That's all fine. But but it's just resolved in a way that I go well. But you have total control. You could just not have it resolved that way. Like like you could just yeah. resolve it in a more interesting way. But I for me the most egregious thing, and then I, I'd love to hear about about folks either responding to that or, or other things for me, the most egregious thing was uh, the treatment of Kevin and Kevin's story. And the reason why I find that egregious is because I thought that Kevin was quite self-evidently a sociopath who should (laughs) obviously have been the villain. Like, like, like I go, I'm like, I'm like, this guy has no personality. This guy has no, like, like he's just a standard white, nice guy who he's got nice guy syndrome. And I thought for sure, like I really did. Like I thought for sure the twist was going to be Kevin's story is real. All the other stories are made up and, and Kevin is lying about seeing go like, like seeing the particular ghost that Alanka says, you know, that she sees. And instead like, Kevin is 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 definitely sick, like he's certainly ill, but is reflecting on his life of evil, which led right. him to, you know, and now he is sick and now he has to sort of reckon with all of this, right? Like I thought for sure that's where that was going. And um, it's okay that it didn't go that way, but I find it egregious that Kevin was so obviously sociopathic. <laughs> like, like it was like, like, like I just thought he was presented in a very obviously, Oh, this guy, the big twist is going to be this guy. Like we all knew that, like we could all see Bev's big twist coming a mile away. Weird herbalist in the woods is very obviously a bad guy. Like we know that, like, that's fine. Like, like Dr. Stanton for a while, we we're like, maybe Dr. Stanton's evil. I'm glad she wasn't like, she was, she's a really sympathetic and great character. Um, but no, I, but in the end, no, Kevin's just that boring. You know, he's just, he's just that boring. He's I, just, I super have to talk about Kevin. I super yeah. have to. Okay. Okay. I'm taking over. So <clears throat> Kevin, I, um, I also thought that he was very, very boring. So I will agree with that. I think that is his greatest sin. Um, I, uh, 
part of the problem with Kevin is because of what was supposed to happen in the second season. So some of that, his like lack of personality and the, and the way that they didn't really do as much developing of his story as I think they could have um, is because of the front seat role, even more so that he was going to take in the next season when they figured out the weird connection between him and Alonka. Which was going to be that they were like reverse possessed by people who lived at the home. Right. So um, something like that, but I just, so, <laughs> so, so, uh, this is coming from the actual Midnight Club book. So this is one of the main through lines through the original, like the book, um, but that was going to play out mostly in the second season. Um, but the, the, what's going on is that there are, um, there's this couple, these two beings who, uh, reincarnate, often um and they 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 find each other in every life um but the the curse that goes along with this is that they always will be tragically separated um by some terrible force before they will reincarnate again so they're always going to find each other but they're always going to experience the loss of the other one every time they go around as well that is the actual through line so the um old man ghost and the old lady ghost that you see in uh in this in the, in this first and unfortunately or maybe fortunately only season um uh the female ghost is actually kevin and the male ghost is alanka and the only thing the only hint we get to that is because of when they see when each one sees the other and when the when each one doesn't so Ilanka only sees the man when she's looking in a mirror and she only sees the woman kind of wandering around and she often transforms magically from whatever weird like horror dreamscape they slip into when they see the ghosts into Kevin and then the opposite is true for Kevin. Kevin sees the female ghost in the mirror and only sees the male ghost wandering around. And we don't see that. It's a thing that he says. Um, right. We don't see many examples of him getting haunted. But yeah. So the idea is that those those two in one of their past reincarnations um, were the, uh, the, the original couple that like had the house built. And this goes into some of the second season stuff. So we can talk about that later. But um, Kevin, the thing that I thought was fantastic about his character um, is that, uh, and I think, mm, okay, part of why he is uh, so absolutely milquetoast, I think is because it was on purpose. He is, he is deeply average. And he even says as much, right? Like he talks about that. He is a deeply average guy. um, And he was perfectly fine with that and did not want to be somebody that was paid attention to or that people were putting their hopes and dreams on. And that's what he becomes when he gets sick, um, is that he becomes the, the center of his family's life to the point where his mom is trying to get his little brother to be just like him. And then he he is the center of his girlfriend's life because she's really excited to have him. And it's like, I'm going to be that girl who's the ride or die, who sticks around forever, even though my boyfriend's dying. And I'm never going to remind him that he's dying because obviously that would upset him. So I'm just going to pretend like he's not dying. <laughs> and, and, and she's the worst. And I don't like her. Um, mm-hmm. She's doing her best. She's a teenage girl. It's not her fault. But um, I just... But yeah, I just, so Kevin is milquetoast on purpose. He is boring on purpose. And I can definitely see what you're saying about the like reading in um, sociopathy, uh, especially because of his individual story that he tells in the Midnight Club where he's literally a murderer. Mm -hmm. Um, But here's my theory on what that is supposed to mean. And I did, um, I've stolen this from a few different sources, so I did not come up with it. I will say that first of all. I think that Kevin is a murderer in his story uh, because that is what he is afraid he's doing to people in his real life. Not like, I think that he is afraid that when he dies, all of these people who thought he was going to make it 
who thought he was going to beat the cancer, you know, win the war or whatever, that like, that he he is going to let every single one of them down, that their lives are going to be changed for the worse when he dies. And he never wanted anybody else's hopes and dreams put on top of him. And now he's forced into that because of the cancer. And so his grappling with death isn't his own, like fear of his own mortality. I'm sure that's in there because who is it not in there for? But he is so concerned about all of the people that he's leaving behind. That's why he doesn't want to break up with the girlfriend, even though he doesn't like her. And that's why he's, uh, that's why it's such a big deal at the end of the series when he's like, no, Alanka, I like you. Let's do this. You know, I think we should live and not focus on dying or whatever, however he says it at the end. Um, but that's, that's why that's such a big moment for his character arc is that he's, he is, his embracing of death is an embracing of life. Um, and, and his entire focus had been on how badly his death was going to affect other people to the point where he stopped living his own life and was mostly just living for the people around him. And it is because of Alanka showing up that he is finally able to think to himself, maybe my happiness matters. Maybe I do matter. Um, maybe what's going on with me is allowed to be about me and not just about everybody else. So his story is about a guy who goes around murdering people that he is close to. The The ghost that's telling him what to do is his mom, which also works because his mom is very overbearing in his real life and is a main source of the angst that he has about trying to live up to other people's expectations. So he's going around killing people because he, in the real life, believes that uh, that's effectively what he's going to do to the people that are closest to him is he's going to break their hearts. Hmm. So that's why I ended up actually liking Kevin's story. Like it's not my favorite one, but I did, but I will give Kevin that defense. He is, he is bland because he is bland. Like he's, he was written bland on purpose. Cause that's actually a very central part of who he is. Which I think is a nice counterpart to Midnight Mass, where you have the bland white guy whose story could not be less interesting to me, uh, who is like the main focus of it until he dies in Burst of Flames, and then makes the way for other people to be more interesting. And then to have a Midnight Club, this very milquetoast white boy who is obviously not the main character because Alanka is, just to like have him there as this example of like, yeah, actually, white people can just be boring. Let's tell better, more interesting stories. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Nick, what do you think? Um, I thought his story was the most boring to me. Mm. Um, mostly because I didn't expect them to actually go where you were hoping for, Ethan. Mm. Like that teased the back of my brain too, but I didn't think they were smart enough to go for it. Um, sorry, uh, but <laughs> yeah, it's just not Flanagan's style. Uh. That it just didn't feel right for how he's typically written his twists and things mm. like that. That might be part of Leah Fung's uh, influence in in this too. I think, as we said earlier, she had she was a lot more involved in this one, and so some of the things that feel very Flanagan were kind of missing from this. And I think that's partly cut due to her writing style versus his. Sure, but I just mean in in the sense of my prediction of where it was going and mm-hmm. so how I engaged with the story as a person, right? So uh, when I watched his, I was like, man, this one keeps going on and I just don't care that much about it because I don't expect it to have much real consequence on anything that happens after this. Um, so, it, and again, it, it wasn't bad. It just, of the stories told, I, I found it the least compelling. Um and I don't really like him as a character and finding out that he's like the secondary main character, right? Because yeah, sure. The, the, the girl is the main character, but this kid is also a part of that, right? They're kind of mm-hmm. like They're in season two, it would have come out more that way as exactly. everybody around them died and they're probably being left to last to, you know, discover everything. Um, that was the sense I got from that um, spoiler recap video. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was sort of where it was headed yep and uh so i actually just hate that i hate everything about that story i think <laughs> it is boring uh 
um, it's it's just it's just a modern day haunted version of Romeo and Juliet, right? Correct. Oh, look, tragic love story. Yay. Yeah, um, and, and that definitely comes back to the fact that this is literally based on a YA horror book. <laughs> like, absolutely. Yeah. like of but here's course, actually he did here's that. actually my problem though is which one of you just said this? Essentially, pick one. Either do this storyline and make it ghosty or do the cult. Like, it didn't make sense to do both because they cancel each other out in tone and what you go for morally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't say, look at the spiritual people and how stupid they are. Nothing they believe is real, yet they keep doing horrible shit for this unreal thing, Mm -hmm. which is kind of the story of the cult, right? Mm -hmm. And then you have... um, But at the same time reincarnation ghosts are real and a shadowy not death thing comes for you when you die and comforts you and uh makes you feel better because we haven't even touched the shadow thing yet but that's that's does the shadow thing make you feel better i thought yeah that was the idea was it was coming to comfort them when they were about to die right so so yes that's one of the things that we learned about the second season is that the um the shadows that the kids see before they die um is so again in the book the way that this works is that the the fact that they are afraid of those shadows is because that's like the last part of them that's not willing to let go. Mm. Um, that's like the, so it's not death so much as their fear of death is the, is the phantom is the shadow. So when they finally are willing to let go is when essentially like imagine that scene where like the villain rips off their mask and it's the the face of the protagonist and you're like it was you I was fighting myself the whole time it's that that's what's going on. Yeah. Is that they that, that's yeah. the moment that we're missing is that you don't see the mask reveal and that's cuz it would have been in the second season. Yeah, and um, it's it's Shadow yeah. Link. It's Shadow mm-hmm. Link and it's totally a fine concept. If you weren't running a storyline at the exact same time that nothing mystical or spiritual happens in the real world ever, right? Mm-hmm. Like it just It's a contradiction right. of tone and message, and it bothered me the entire time I watched this. So, like, you have mm-hmm. essentially three fine storytelling paths to take, and they said, let's do all of them at once. And I was like, ah, <laughs> oh, God, now it's messy. Yeah, yeah. Messy, messy is a good word for it. Uh, there, there's a messiness to the show that frustrates me because not even not even Midnight Mass was messy. Mm. You know, it's 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 tight, and I tend to like tight. You know, in, in terms of my stories, and so that's why I I was so frustrated with Midnight Mass. But but yes, you're right. There's by the end of the show where you're trained to expect with a with a Flanagan show that it's going to come together in this way and it ends up not, uh, it, it, it does get frustrating. Like you, because of the cult thing, Nick, you do, even though this would be unsatisfying, you want it all to be in their head, right? Like, well, if it's a cult and, and the cult is wrong, then there can't be any ghosts. It all ha- they all have to be hallucinating, right? Otherwise then the cult is kind of right you know like like, yes they're evil and bad but like if they just dug a little deeper they discover that they can commune with the spirits of the people of the house you know and and then maybe find cures for their cancer like like it's yeah i see what you're saying i hadn't thought of it that way but i think you're right yeah or or like you could also do you could tell a story about like humility in the face of the unknown where the cult is trying to control the unknown but if you were just letting the unknown happen you you go deeper into the mystery right there's a way to do that too that's also not what they what they chose yeah i think the messiness of this is also the reason why bly manor gets bumped down on my list because Mm. bly manor i thought was going to go in a couple different directions and yes there's like one kind of protagonist but there's two many conflicting things happening in it for me to be like fully satisfied with it I want it to be tighter yeah yeah I agree with all that I'm trying to think of like the uh, what kind of stuff or Nick do you have other things that you um like another another nitpick that's not Kevin related can I actually actually I um based off of just where we were going with the this past conversation I want to say something actually kind of positive do it 
which we we teased in the positive section, but I wanted to dig into it just a little bit more, uh, is that how much better they did uh, of portraying the problem with religion mm. in this one than mm-hmm. they did in Midnight Mass, right? I think the narrative particularly between the kid with AIDS and the religious girl does a really good job doing the the kind of narrative work to say, hey, religion can be a real fucking prick sometimes, mm. right? By, by not making it this big, dramatic vampire reveal, but by showing it for what it really is in the midst of a horror season, right? You have all this shit going on. Some of it's mystical, some of it's perceived mystical. There's spooky music everywhere. And the, and still the most terrifying part of the entire show for me is the reality that a girl who truly believes that gay people are going to hell can end up in hospice care with a kid dying of AIDS. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm. And and that that interaction can, can be their final interaction on this earth. And that's terrifying. And that should be terrifying. Um, and I like that it was subtle compared to everything else. Because I think the real struggle I have with religion a lot of times and that I see is that the, the problems are, are often subtle, mm. uh, at, at least at first. You don't see the big dramatic, um, you know, uh, there, j- j- religion is not just sort of casually committing genocide, right? Mm. Uh, it, it's subtler, more insidious mindsets. And I think that was Flanagan's point with the cult in the woods, right? Was to show the slower progression of how the allure of answers to deep mysteries and, and, and things that terrify us. If we go, Ethan's going to love it. If we go with Paul Tillich on this one and we say that faith is ultimately the result of an, of an ultimate concern, right? Mm. And until it usually later sort of defines that concern as our mortality, um, we are concerned with our death. We are concerned with what comes next or, you know, we all want to live forever. We want consciousness forever. Um, and so a group comes along and pries on our innocent uh, and vulnerable moments when we're facing death down as a terminally ill child might. Um, and they say, I can teach you a way out of this. I know the deep mysteries. Uh, and it starts really innocent. Hey, we have some herbs that slow things. Okay. Right? Nothing nothing terrible there. Just like, hey, the, the happy hippie in the woods has some really pure water and some herbs she puts together in a tea. And that's not anything terrifying. It's it's just something we all do. It's, it's uh, folksy medicine, right? It's not a big deal. Nick, I'm going to interrupt for one second because this is giving me a thought and I don't want to lose it. I'm sorry. Absolutely. There, this reminds me a lot of folks that um, sold patent medicines um, before FDA regulation became a thing. So it was like folks that would sell you a tonic that cured everything, um, and 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 people would get swindled by it and would absolutely spend their money on it and was mostly just like laudanum, opium, alcohol, or nothing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so. The people who did like medicine shows. Yes, exactly. Like like people who would put on medicine shows, which were literally a response. One of the reasons they existed is that they were a response to the Catholic Church saying that people weren't allowed to attend circuses anymore. So right. like people who had elements of like those kind of crowd grabbing performances would just do like one of those things out in the street. It's not a circus if there's like, you know, one lady over here that's doing like uh, tightrope walking. And then like an hour later, there's a dude selling you random medicine over here, but he's putting on a show. So that counted. So it was fine. Um, but the, one of the things that this, um, that uh, a woman online that I was listening to her do a, a video essay on this. And she said, it's interesting. It's easy for us to think about how easily duped these folks were. Like, how could you read a bottle that had like this cures, blah, 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 you know, everything that you could possibly have wrong with you. Um, and uh, trust me, it works. Um, and the thing that I thought was interesting was she said, we have to be really careful about judging these folks for in our consideration being so easily duped. 
first of all, people didn't understand how medicine worked and had a strong understanding that if something was wrong with your body, that it had exactly one source. And so something that could cure everything made sense because uh, everything that was wrong with you probably had one source. Also, doctors sucked. Yes, that's the other thing. Not only did they suck, but in some places in the country, they didn't exist, you know? Not anyone who even had something anywhere near a license. It was just anybody could say they were a doctor. So especially out West, there were a lot of folks who just kind of showed up and said, I'm the town doctor now. And the only thing they really knew how to do was maybe successfully take off a limb, pull a tooth, you know, and, and those people need those things from time to time. So they were trusted enough to get you through it because whatever. Um, so the alternatives were you could go over here and buy this thing that not only can you afford, but probably won't kill you. Unlike one of these doctors or nothing. Those are your options. Terrible things. Or maybe I, in my last ditch attempt, try this thing over here because somebody said it worked. I'll try it. Um, and if there were enough people that got better in spite of whatever drug they took, they might assume that the drug helped them. So they might share that like, oh yeah, you know, my stomach was really feeling poorly and I took this thing and it helped. So maybe if you take this thing, it'll cure whatever's wrong with you. And so that's how they continue to snowball because of that too. And then it's just a cycle that keeps going on itself. So when we think about things like Shasta out in the woods selling wellness, whatever, and the fact that that folks still today, like you can get on goop and find something that says it'll cure your cancer. And so, but this idea of like people who are desperate, whose solutions are, have either run out or they can't afford them anymore, or, uh, you know, they don't trust the medical profession for various reasons that this is the last thing that they have. They have access to this thing and maybe it'll work. And that's what we see through Alonka's you know, whole story. She starts off and apparently Anya started that way too, um, that both of Mm -hmm. them kind of had this idea that like, maybe this last thing will work because everything else has failed and your options are give up (laughs) when you have been told you got to beat the cancer. You can't, you know, not fight. You got to keep fighting. Um, So your options are give up and disappoint all of those people that are telling you to keep fighting or try this quack thing. Um, so yeah. So I love that, that, sorry, you, Nick, you, you started talking in that direction and that's where I went. And the same thing with, we see the same thing with like the wellness to white supremacy pipeline in the United States right now. now. You're straight up taking my whole point that I was moving towards. No, do it, Nick, do it, do it, do it. it. (laughs) No, you go for it. I can stop there. It's okay. I I lost my role in Thunder anyway, so just go. I'm for so it. sorry. That's my fault. It's okay. Like all I was gonna say was that. Um, sorry, that was a very uh, socialized as female thing to belittle my point, which is the point that the man was just about to make. Um, yeah, that like it's very easy to something some you're not getting the care you need from the healthcare system, or something just doesn't go right, or you just don't t- trust the doctor, or the doctor does the thing that doctors have really frequently told me, which is like, we'll go home, take some Advil, call me if it gets worse, you know, mm-hmm. and that doesn't solve the problem that just tells you that you're not worthy of their care, because they're overburdened. And so then you get into wellness things that like kind of make you be more suspicious of the of the industry of the medical industry and then like from there it's a straight shot to anti-vax to QAnon to COVID denialism to like full-out white supremacy like it just it goes it goes and goes snowballs and that's like that's how you could also see people like it's that's how the cult is very reasonable in this you know it's very easy to think to see oh these people think they've got something magic and we have proof of somebody who went into spontaneous remission like that totally makes sense and it's it is very easy to go from herbs to maybe um aren't they like balancing their humors like it's their own bile they're drinking to well you know if it's my bile then i trust this person who's gonna put something else in my body and then you know you have a jonestown so yes that is basically the the point i was building towards and that's perfectly said i want to add one layer to it uh Mm -hmm. as a commentary on religion specifically which is what you know they flanagan seems to like to do is that the way in part of the way in which these sorts of 
benign curiosities, lack last effort of desperation attempts, uh, the, these these vulnerable mindsets that get pulled in by these things, um, which we're all subject to, by the way, not belittling anybody here, they're right. absolutely all subject to this, um, is that they take the thing that makes you feel the most insecure or upset, in this case, the, the terminal illness, right? And they say, one, they say, I can help you with that, mm-hmm. and then show you examples of how they've helped people with that. Right, So they build trust in you before anything has happened to you at all to convince you that when it inevitably doesn't work for you, that it's not their fault and they don't lose any credibility. And the way you do that is by making that failure turn your negative into something that makes you special. Oh, this works for other people. It doesn't work for me. I have the super special bad illness. Um, So we need to go to level two to cure this illness. Oops, that didn't work either. Well, now I have to get you to level three. And level three is where I'm going to ask you to basically kill all your friends. Um, Because the thing in you is so special bad that it needs special bad solutions. Yeah. That's at least the story that plays out in this show. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's how this always goes, but that is the scenario that they pinpoint here, right? Mm-hmm. She never loses confidence in Shasta. Not really. Mm-hmm. She grows in confidence. The more the herbs aren't working, the more things don't work. It, taken by itself, that doesn't make any fucking sense at all, mm-hmm. right? So something has to be happening psychologically to make that occur. And it's that your brain shifts and tricks yourself into thinking that you have the special bad illness. And it sounds terrible because sure, surely nobody really wants to think they're special because of bad things, right? But it doesn't matter because our brains do these things to cope with the reality, Hmm. right? Sure. It's anybody's fault, but that is what plays out in this show. And I think that's worth evaluating because religions take advantage of this all the time. Look at the faith healing tradition, Mm -hmm. you know, is married to fundamentalism that we call evangelicalism. Um, It's a big part of it. And this is how it fucking happens. And they fill these giant tents and these big meetings for this. And Mm -hmm. they put some actors out there to quote unquote be healed. Mm -hmm. And then everybody else either falls into groupthink and plays along to, to continue to prove it, right? Or it's their own fault for not being faithful enough. Look at how they're criticizing the whole thing. But you guys all saw it with your own eyes. You know it works. So this right. is evidence to their lack of faith and therefore their problem. Um, you know. This reminds me of that church, I think it was in California, where they um, had like a two-year-old girl die and then the family, well, the pastor refused to bury her and they had the whole congregation pray that she be raised from the dead and like believed that if they prayed hard enough, she would rise. Um, and it took a long time for people to like convince them, no, <laughs> like the parents had to finally be like, we need to bury her now. <laughs> like it was really, really bad. But that's like the, that's where this goes. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes to really insidious places. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Jonestown happened by practice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. he Jim Jones had them practicing poisoning themselves Mm -hmm. um, to for the sake of the gospel uh, in the community, and to feed their children poison. Mm -hmm. Right, Mm -hmm. and this is the more dramatic example that he wanted to bring out in Midnight Mass. Right, Mm -hmm. he just totally misunderstood how Jonestown happens. Yes. In my opinion. And I think this time around, he got it right. This is, mm-hmm. this is more correct to how mass suicide events occur. This is, this is more how it goes. And when you marry it to the, the subtler conversation between the kid with AIDS and the girl with the, with the religion problem, 
<laughs> when you marry those ideas together, it actually creates a, for me, a much more powerful narrative about religion. Yep. And the caution around it. Absolutely. You know, you know that's why that's why we don't know exactly what her diagnosis is. It's because her problem is, is that she's religious. That's her <laughs> sickness. She's terminally religious. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. that's that's. No, uh, I think we know Sandra's. We don't know Sherry's. Oh, which yeah. one? I don't even remember Sherry's. Who's yeah, that's, Sherry? an, that's an easy mistake to make because those two characters were essentially one character in in the book. So some of their personalities uh, are kind of been split out between them. Not like a ton of it, but a little bit. Like uh, in the book, it's um, Sandra's character that never tells a story. In the in the show, it's Sherry who never tells a story, but in in um, until the very end. But yeah, in the book it's it's uh, Sandra. And part of the reason why it's Sandra is because she ends up being the one who goes home and is not right. terminal anymore. So right. she Sandra is initially diagnosed with terminal lymphoma, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that's what yeah. she thinks she has all the time. But then they, it turned out it was a misdiagnosis. Yeah, right. I well, remember that part. Yeah, I think it's the, it's not a misdiagnosis. It's that, well, it sort of is that she is not in the stage that they thought she was in. Right. She's still sick. She hasn't, she still has cancer. She's just not dying right now. So there's no need to keep her in hospice care. And that makes sense. That's actually, I, I, I thought this plotline was really interesting because they kind of touched on it at the very beginning, but this is like specific hospice knowledge that every six months they essentially need to reassess whether or not you're still dying. Um, so that's actually very standard. And at the beginning, the kids like say something about like a double diagnosis is what they call it. Um, and I don't think that's what it's called generally through hospice now. Maybe that was a nineties thing, but the, um, the, uh, the, that process of like going back and checking again is actually very, very normal. Um, and I thought that was interesting too, because it's played as it's a miracle. Um, and it's like, okay, sure. (laughs) This just kind of happens sometimes. Like people outlive their hospice stays fairly often to the point where there is a system in place so that if you do not need to be on hospice care anymore, they take you off it. That's how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That tracks. I think this is a good place to pause and go to the next episode. So I'm going to sign us off. Well, friends, thanks for listening. This has been an episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? I have been Joe. I'm Annalise. I suppose I am Nick. And we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples podcast network. Our theme song is written by Joe Shomwolf, performed by Joe Shomwolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Email us at whatthehellsapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to Pillow Talk, merch, bonus content, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and hey, ghosts, leave those kids with cancer alone. Prophet, preacher, servant, leader, reverend, deacon, blah, blah, blah. That was the best ad read of all time, you guys. Yeah, for sure. So good at it.